In Matthew chapter 7, verses 21 through 27. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name, cast out demons in your name, and do many mighty works in your name? And then will I declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them, well, like a wise man who builds his house upon the rock. And the rain fell and the floods came, the winds blew and beat on the house, but it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain fell and the floods came, the wind blows and blew and beat against that house, and it fell. And great was the fall of it. This is the word of God. We're in Matthew chapter 7, beginning in verse 21, as Pastor Jeff just read, how to be strong. I want to talk to us this morning about how to be strong. And um, I don't know if you like going to movies or if you like movie uh, actors. One of my favorite actors, you know, I, I shouldn't even admit it, it's terrible, but now we're here. Now I have to. Um, Dwayne the Rock Johnson. You see, I always thought this guy was funny, and he's got this goofy grin, and the action movies are a lot of fun. And, but then, have you seen Moana? But then dude can sing. I mean, he sings a song. Anyway, I said, this guy's uh, yeah, a five-tool guy when it comes to acting. Dwayne The Rock Johnson, he was in a movie, and I can't remember the name of the film. You'd probably be offended if I could. Um, but what it was, he played this guy that when he was in high school, he was this kind of nerd, and nobody liked him, and he was... Uh, sort of physically uh, not ideal as the way he was as a grown-up. Then later in life, as a grown-up, of course, he's Dwayne The Rock Johnson, you know, chiseled on manhood, just The Rock. And so his friend says, how did this happen? How did you accomplish this physical feat of becoming in such great physical strength? And The Rock, Dwayne, I don't know the name of the character, is he said, oh, it's easy. Anybody can do it. And he was so excited. I know the secret. Are you ready for the secret? All you have to do is do what I did. Go to the gym every day, eight hours a day for 20 years. It's a piece of cake. And then you also can be strong like me. It's just as simple as that. Go to the gym every day, eight hours a day for 20 years, and you too can be strong. Well, good news When we look at the passage today, we don't have to go to the gym every day, eight hours a day for 20 years, but we do need to understand, in the kingdom of God, how are we strong? What does it look like to be strong in the kingdom of God? And we're going to look at basically two different ways that we can understand strength in the kingdom of God and how we find our hope in Christ alone. Look first with me at Matthew chapter 7, beginning in verse 21. I'm going to read it again. I appreciate Jeff reading it, but just to remind us, 21, 22, and 23. How to be strong to stand on the last day. We want to know how to be strong. The first thing we need to wonder is how are we going to be strong so we can stand on the last day? Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. 
On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. How to be strong to stand on the last day. Have you ever played musical chairs? It's a very violent game. Almost as violent as spoons, but probably not quite so much so. But musical chairs, there's 10 people, only nine chairs. The music plays. When the music stops, everybody find a chair, and the one person who doesn't find a chair is out, right? Now, nobody cares. Round one, if you found a chair, did you win? No, you only win if you find a chair at the end. And what Jesus is saying here is what matters is that day. There's a day coming when every human will stand before God and give account of his life. And he says, that day matters. And how are you going to be certain that you can be strong when the last day comes? How will you know that you will have the strength to stand when in the Psalms it says, God can open his mouth and melt the earth? How will you have the strength to stand in that day? Look with me. Lord, Lord, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. Here's our reality check. Are you ready? Not everyone will be with the Lord in heaven forever. Jesus is making it quite clear. Not everyone will be with the Lord in heaven forever. In fact, if we believe what we studied last week in Verse 13 of this chapter, just a few verses above the one we're reading now, he said this, Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide, and the way is easy that leads to destruction, and those who enter it are many. The gate is narrow, and the way is hard that leads to life. Those who find it are few. We might surmise from these two passages, not only is not everyone in heaven, we might suggest most people aren't. And the reality check on our life is not everyone ends up in heaven and each one of us must give an account and be certain that on that day we will stand and be able to say, I'm going to enter the kingdom of my Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Look at this group of people who cry out to Christ and call him Lord. Lord, Lord. This group has done what? Did you see the list of things they have done? They have prophesied in his name. They have cast out demons in his name. They have done mighty works in his name. We must make clear what Jesus doesn't do. He doesn't say these things didn't happen. He doesn't say, oh, your prophecy was sort of lame. You predicted the sun would come up. No, he's not saying prophecy didn't occur. He is saying, yes, you did prophesy. You did, in fact, tell the future. This is not unheard of in the scripture for evil spirits and evil things to be able to tell the future. That's not complicated. They say, we cast out demons. Is, that, is he saying they didn't cast out demons? No. These are folks who would cast out demons. In fact, they even sum everything up. We did mighty works in your names. That means these folks were able to do miraculous, powerful, supernatural, spiritual works, uh, saying that, of course, that it was from the power of Christ, and Jesus says, these are not things that will get you into heaven. Congratulations on casting out demons. Congratulations on your mighty works. This is exciting stuff. This is exhilarating stuff. 
probably would fill a church, probably would uh, help a Christian TV station do real well. Doesn't help you stand in the end. Maybe just as an aside, we should think and reflect on this as we think about our own Christian life. We tend to want exciting we tend to want exhilarating. We tend to want breakthroughs and inspirational movements and renewal and power and impact. Aren't these things that move us? I read my Bible this morning. I was really inspired. I went to church and I had a breakthrough and I went to a camp and I, I finally had the renewal I was looking for. These are all great things. But Jesus is saying you can have these things and not have Jesus. You can have power, you can have impact, you can have all of these things and miss the kingdom. Another way to think about this is these folks had come to the day of the Lord to say, let us into the, your kingdom, look at all of the things we have done. Saying we should be let into the kingdom because we are kingdom doing people, that is we deserve the kingdom. Look, we're amazing. We can do miracles, cast out demons, do mighty works. Obviously, we are kingdom worthy. Certainly, this is true of all people. We would want the kingdom of God, and mostly bound in our human heart is the desire not only to have the kingdom of God, but also to deserve the kingdom of God. The fact is, none of us as humans want to be a charity case. None of us want to show up in heaven and just simply be let in. Fine, we need to... Let a certain number in free to keep our tax-exempt status. Think of it this way. Maybe you uh, decide to go to a dinner show. You pay extra for the VIP seating, get you up front and close, and get you free dessert. Very important things. I'm going to a show and a dinner. So you pay for your VIP pass, and when you get there, they seat you in the back... And there's no dessert for people in the back. No, no dessert for you. Just want a little, maybe a little chocolate? Nothing for you. Say, hey, listen, buddy, I paid for the VIP. I know who I, I got my ticket right there. In fact, if you were like me, you probably would take out your ticket. Look, I'm supposed to be up there. This is what these religionists were doing. They're getting to heaven and say, listen, Jesus, we've punched our ticket, let us in. This kingdom is for people like it, us. And Jesus is going, I don't know who you are. We want to be in the kingdom because we want to deserve the kingdom, and we want to be in the kingdom because the kingdom is where we can matter. Uh, the, the kingdom is the place we deserve to be. The kingdom is the place we're supposed to be. And this is exactly the argument these people were making to Jesus. And Jesus is saying, I'm sorry, but I am not familiar with you. Let's get down to the bare bones about the kingdom. Are you ready? We don't matter. The kingdom does not rely on you and me. We just simply don't matter. Now, I'm not saying you don't have significance. Who matters in the kingdom? Jesus. If everybody leaves the kingdom except for Jesus, guess what? It's still just as good. The kingdom is all about Christ, and we don't matter in the kingdom the way these religionists would. There will never be a time that we deserve that kingdom. Who is the only one who deserves the kingdom? Jesus. He is the only one in all of history who deserves 
the kingdom. And guess what? When it comes right down to it, we're not supposed to be in that kingdom. Jesus is the only one who is supposed to be in that kingdom. Lord, look at what we've done now. Look at our list of good deeds. The kingdom is designed for people like me. And Jesus will quickly respond, understand where you're going. It's designed for people like me. And you're not me. So who gets into the kingdom? Well, long story longer, the charity cases. Lord, Lord, uh, not everyone who says, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father and who is in heaven. Okay, two things the will of the Father in heaven is. Very quickly, of course, you know I say that, and it's meaningless. First thing is the will of the Father. Let's look at John chapter 6, verse 35. John chapter 6, verse 35. I'm going to read it. John chapter 6, verse 35. I'm going to read through John Chapter 6, verse 40. Jesus said this. I am the bread of life. Appropriate since we took communion today. I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall not thirst. But I said to you that you uh, have seen me, and yet you do not believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. Verse 40, For this is the will of my Father. Everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. Jesus said, those who are in the kingdom will do with the will of the Father. What's the will of the Father for you? Believe in Jesus. The will of the Father is that we would trust Jesus and that we would be a charity case. Jesus, I don't deserve to get into the kingdom. I've disobeyed you. If I had my way, I would have nailed you to the cross myself. My rebellion has done it. My sin has done it. But Jesus, I believe that what you did washes over everything that I have done and so, therefore, I will be in the kingdom because I am in you. The will of the Father is that we would look to Jesus, that we would trust what Jesus alone did on the cross, receive forgiveness of sins, and then go into the kingdom because we're in Christ. That's the will of the Father. Those who do the will of the Father are those who say, I trust Jesus and no one else. I trust Jesus will wash away my sins. When you stand before the Father and he says, why should I let you into heaven? Now, I'm not saying that's going to happen, but what's your answer? Jesus said I could get in. Satan will stand there and say, but you're a dirty, rotten sinner. I know, it's, it's kind of cool. It's weird. Jesus said I get to get in. Do the will of the Father. Believe in Christ. The gospel is good news. It says this. You get to receive forgiveness of sins by simply trusting that what Jesus did on the cross brings you forgiveness. As one author has said, the gospel is good news, not good advice. It is simply believe this truth. Jesus died for sinners. He rose from the dead, will live forever with him. 
What's the first thing we do to do the will of the Father? Trust Jesus. It doesn't end there. Do the will of my Father. Look with me at Galatians chapter 4, verse 19. Paul says this to the, church, the churches in the area of Galatia. My little children, for whom I am in anguish, I'm in anguish until Christ is formed in you. So having trusted Jesus, and yet we're not in heaven yet, do you agree? I mean, it feels like it because the smoke is lifted for a couple of days. But we're not home yet, and Jesus, or the Bible teaches us, being in Christ, the goal of the believer is to be formed into Christ, that we would look more and more like Christ as we get nearer to the time of going home. And Paul is saying to the believers in the church in Galatia, he is in anguish that Christ would be formed in them. To do of the will of the Father is to be made into the image of Christ, to be formed into his likeness in our life over time. Or the other thing Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, uh, verse 1, it's a very uh, short verse, be imitators of me as I am an imitator of Christ. So what he's saying, the will of the Father is we believe Christ for forgiveness, and then we spend the rest of our life here anticipating the kingdom by being like Christ in our life. We obey Christ by believing in him, and we obey Christ by learning to live in his ways, formed into the image of Christ, imitating Christ. One other verse, Matthew 25. I'm going to read the whole thing. It's a section of Matthew 25. Jesus touches on this again, and his words are better than mine. I'm beginning in verse 31 of Matthew 25. This is what it says, Matthew 25, beginning in verse 31. I'm going to read uh, quite a bit to the end of the chapter, verse 46, so stick with me. When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, he will sit on his glorious throne. Before him will be gathered all the nations, and he'll separate people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. He'll place the sheep on his right, but the goats on his left. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. So he says to those on his right, Come into the kingdom. I've been working on this kingdom for a very long time. It's pretty nice. Listen to what he says. I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you welcomed me. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him and saying, Lord, when, did you, when were you hungry and we fed you? Just some legal advice for these folks. At this point, say, sounds good. He's letting you in. You don't need to argue with him. But he wants to make a point, so... When were you hungry and we fed you? Or when were you thirsty and we gave you a drink? And when did we see you as a stranger and welcome you or give you clothing? When did we come visit you? And the king will answer, Truly I say to you, as you did to any of these who were the least, you did it as though it was me. Then he'll say to those on his left, Depart from me, you cursed uh, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. I was hungry and you gave me nothing. I was a stranger, you didn't welcome me. I was naked, you didn't clothe me. I was sick and in prison and you did not visit me. And they'll say, Lord, we never saw you. 
when did this happen? Like, we haven't seen you the whole time. And he said, whenever you refrained or did not do these things for the least of these, it's as though you did not do it for me, and they will go away into eternal punishment, the righteous into eternal life. Why do I bring this up? Because the righteous who were standing before Christ were not surprised at the outcome. They knew in their heart they were in Christ. They knew they were coming into the kingdom. What were they surprised about? They were surprised about the things that Jesus noticed about them. I'm certain, each, I'm certain that each and every one of them probably had their top 10 good deeds that they hoped Jesus might pick out. Notice he didn't pick out any of the really good ones that they thought were good. He points out some very vanilla, somewhat boring acts of obedience. He helped some people out who were in a bind. These folks were surprised of the kinds of things that Jesus was keenly interested in. Maybe I can say it this way. They were surprised at how mundane they were. We can divide it into two groups in this way if we take these two passages together. You've got one group who have been doing some supernatural, powerful, miraculous stuff. They're surprised they're not in the kingdom. Then you've got some folks who've been doing the boring day in, day out, helping the guy next to them because they love the Lord, and they're surprised at how keenly interested Jesus is in those things. How to be strong to stand on the last day is to do the will of the Father. Number one is to believe Christ and Christ alone. And having done that, number two is to understand that obedience, boring, mundane, day in, day out, Christian obedience to Christ is more supernatural than miracles. And if you've lived longer than five minutes, you know that's true. When you do something good, aren't you kind of stoked? Do you know why you're kind of excited about doing something good? Because it's so unusual. If you did it all the time, you're like, oh, there I go again, being Mr. Perfect. But obedience, we have to understand what Jesus is saying to us here in Matthew chapter 7 is obedience is more supernatural than miracles. Even evil people can do miracles. It takes the spirit of Christ in us for us to wake up in the morning and have hearts set on being obedient to the will of Christ. And, and when I mean obedience, I just mean simple things, extending love and mercy to those in our home, extending grace to those in our workplace. Frankly, what we want is a, uh, is a religion or a faith that's sort of this endless parade of spectacular events in our life. We want a relationship with God, a relationship with church, a relationship with his people that's this endless crescendo of experiences and wonder. And what Christ does when he grants us his kingdom, when we enter his kingdom by faith in him alone, is he calls us into faithful, even quiet obedience, primarily accomplished in the midst of great difficulty. We want miraculous and exciting and powerful, and Christ calls us into simple, quiet, unseen obedience 
that is done in the middle of great difficulty. How to stand strong, or how to be strong to stand on the last day is to do the will of the Father. Obey the will of the Father. Trust Christ and Christ alone. Obey the will of the Father. Obey Christ today in the quiet, maybe even mundane, boring ways of expressing love and relationship to those around us. So maybe this begs the question, if that's how you're going to be strong on that day, how do you stand strong today? So here's the next question. How to be strong to stand in the storm that is today? Let's read again Matthew 7, the story, the little parable that Jesus says. Everyone who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. The rain came down and the floods came up. I think you have to do the motions. I'm not going to sing for you. The rain fell, the floods came, and the winds blew, and they beat on the house, but it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. That's Jesus, not Dwayne Johnson. need to be very clear on that. Everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like the foolish man who built his house on the sand, and the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew, and beat against the house, and it fell, and great was the fall of it. How to be strong to stand in the storm. Let's remember one other pretty significant storm in the Bible. It's in Genesis chapter 6, and I think it bears understanding. In Genesis chapter 6, God came to Noah, and he said, Make yourself an ark of gopher wood. I don't know what gopher wood is, but it must float. Make rooms in the ark. Cover it inside and out with pits. This is how you make it. The length of it is to be 300 cubits. Its breadth is 50 cubits. Its height is 30 cubits. Make a roof for the ark. Finish it to a cubit above and set a door on the side. Make it with lower decks and third decks. For behold, I will bring a flood of waters upon the earth to destroy everything. But I'm going to establish my covenant with you. Noah built a giant ark. I don't know if you can tell from those measurements. It's relatively large. And I want you to build it because I'm going to bring a flood that's going to destroy all life, but I'm going to maintain my covenant with you. Noah obeyed the word of the Lord, and he did them, even though it was what? Sunny outside. It's hard to tell from the Bible how long it took him to build the ark, anywhere from 120 years, depending on how you read one verse, probably closer to at least maybe 50 to 90 years of construction on the ark, building this ark. And the Bible says that in building the ark, he was proclaiming the good news of the gospel to all those who saw it. Of course, everybody rejected it, but everyone saw it. So he builds the ark. You know how the story goes? Rain came down, the floods came up, and the ark was his salvation. See, what it is, is the, how to be stand strong in the storm is to faithfully live in obedience to Christ despite what everybody is telling us around us. And this is exactly what happened with the guy who was building his house. He built his house on the rock, meaning he established his life on Christ and obedience to, him, obedience to Christ, even though it wasn't raining out. Jesus is saying, a life lived accordance with my words is a house that is going to be well-established, even though today it may not seem like you need to be well-established. Everything's fine. Let's reflect on a couple of the words Jesus spoke that we should establish our lives on. 
Matthew chapter 5, verse 3. It's just a couple of pages back in your Bible. Here's a couple of things Jesus said. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they're going to be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they will receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the sons of God. Jesus is saying, build your life on the foundation of these things. Live your life as one who is seeking meekness and mercy and peacemaking. One who is okay with mourning because you know the world isn't fixed yet. One who is poor in spirit, meaning I'm not overly confident in my own abilities. And Jesus is saying, build your house on these things before the storm comes, not in the middle of the storm. Two guys build their houses. One guy builds his house on the rock. What's the pain with building your house on the rock? The biggest pain of building your house on the rock is the rock is right there. I mean, you can't see it. If you're going to build your house on the rock, you only have one place to build it, wherever the rock is. If you build your house on the sand, where can you build your house? Anywhere you want. Because I don't know if you've been to the Middle East, there's a little sand. Literally can build your I think I'm going to build my house on sand. You might want to narrow it down for us a little bit. You've just described that entire region. Of course, I'm exaggerating, sort of. But if you can build your house on the rock, there's only one spot the rock is. You say, well, can't they just pour concrete? You missed the point. Back then, here's where the rock is. If I'm going to build it on a rock, it's got to be where that rock is because that's where the foundation is. And he's saying the one who builds his house on the rock is doing so as a wise person, meaning drawing from his knowledge and drawing from his experience, he says, it's not raining today, but I know it does on occasion rain. And I know what happens to the surface of the ground when it rains. I want my house firmly fixed. So let me make a couple of observations and hopefully get not too far afield from the parable Jesus was telling. Both people build their homes as an act of faith. The person who builds his house on the rock builds his home as an act of faith that rain is indeed coming, and the one who builds his house in the sand as an act of faith that rain will never come. But both are an act of faith. One simply trusts that what God says is true, and the other one says, I think I know what's best. The house on the rock can only be built in one place, whereas the person building on the sand, he can find the best view, highest-priced real estate. He can build everywhere he wants, anywhere he wants. The person building on the rock is very restricted on what he can do. The person who builds his house on the rock, we have to understand, is going to spend most of his time working on parts of the house that will never be seen the foundation, or that which is below the surface, whereas the one not building on the rock, his house is going to be almost 100% working on that which is observed.
The one who's building their house on the rock is kind of like Noah working on the ark, working primarily on things and about things in life that are not going to be needed today, whereas the person building his house on the sand gets to decide what to do today based on the whims of today. I think today I want new countertops. Whereas the person building his house on the rock is only concerned about that foundation, even though that today, that foundation isn't even needed. Look with me again at Matthew chapter 5 at the beginning. We just read the Beatitudes. I'm going to read them again. I'm going to draw out some examples of what it looks like to prepare our foundation through the Beatitudes. Verse 3 of Matthew 5. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Poor in spirit. We might say these are folks who are insecure. Another way of saying it that's much more religious sounding, not maybe demeaning, is these are folks who have confessional humility. Confessional humility is the person who says, you know what, I know I'm going to need to confess again in about 20 minutes. The poor in, spirit, poor in spirit person, over the course of their life walking with Christ, with Christ are not come, becoming more and more confident of their ability to walk with Christ. They're becoming more and more confident of the ability of Christ to carry them along. What we want to do as Christians is we want to build a house where the longer I live with Christ, the less poor in spirit I have to be. Where Jesus is calling us to build a foundation, the more we live with Christ, the more poor in spirit we discover we are. The more we discover how much we need the blood of Christ, the more we discover how much we need his grace and mercy, even again today and tomorrow may be even more so. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Because when we get to the kingdom of heaven, and Jesus says, why in the world should I let you in? We will say, you shouldn't, but you're going to, because I know what you're like. Blessed are those who mourn. That is, those who see the world as it is. Those who see the world for what it's really like. That our hope cannot be affixed to anything in this world. The world around us will look at us and say, you're just killjoys. Come on, really? Say, listen, life's not bad. Heaven's better. And the longer I more discover what Christ is like, the more my heart will become clearer in understanding how broken this world really is. A firm foundation is one who, over time, by drawing closer to Christ, will look at this world and see its brokenness and mourn and proclaim the hope of the gospel into it. Verse 5, blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. What does it mean to be meek? Just simply means you believe everyone else is more important than you. The world around us calls this a pushover, pansy, spineless. You're always getting, excuse me, you're always getting walked on. And Jesus says, pursue a strong foundation of what? Meekness. And what does he say the meek will do? Inherit the earth, which is the exact opposite of what meek normally do. Who inherits the earth nowadays? The strong, the powerful, the well-heeled, the influential. 
And Jesus says, I'm going to turn that all upside down. The meek will inherit the earth. Build a strong foundation of meekness, a willingness to say everyone else is more important than me, and that's fine. Because that's the way Jesus approached his life. Look at verse 6 of Matthew 5. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. These are those who are so desirous of the kingdom of Christ and so desirous of his righteousness, we say, I want his kingdom even more than I want my next meal. Of course, the world around us considers folks like this idealists and zealots. It's like, okay, simmer down on the Jesus stuff, okay? It's good, kind of helps your marriage, helps you be a good parent and a good citizen, but simmer down. It's a fairy tale. And in, in, in this person, the one who's building their foundation on the rock, we say, no, Christ's kingdom is all my heart is yearning for. Over time, it's yearning for it more and more and more. Only a couple more. Verse 7 of Matthew 5. Blessed are the merciful. What does it mean to be merciful? I guess that's not terribly complicated, except doing it is a pain. Remember, being merciful for those who are fawning over you trying to admit their faults is one thing. That's good. Somebody apologize. I'm sorry. I'm a moron. I'm an idiot. I'm sorry. Will you forgive? Of course. I'll for mercy. Okay. That's one kind of mercy. There's a whole other kind that's Jesus-y mercy, which is mercy for the morons. And you can write that sucker down. These are people not desperate for your forgiveness. These are people you don't want to forgive because they're going to do it again. You say, well, why in the world that, why in the world would I do that? Well, we don't want to have to go through meek and everything again. But again, this might be kind of Jesus-y sort of thing. Thank goodness Jesus doesn't merely forgive us when we finally figured something out and we're going to stop doing it. 1 John 1, 9, confess your sins and he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins as long as that was the last time. Right? I mean, isn't that, did I get it wrong? I don't know. I was in Awana, but maybe I, that was the different version we memorized. Confess your sins, he's faithful and just forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. There's a period there. Not if we get our act together, not if we finally figure it out, not if we're finally over it, we got into a program, none of that. Isn't that funny? He just cleanses, he's crazy about this. And all he's doing is, he says, as the way I do this settles into your heart, maybe you can forgive this way. And I know what you're, you're already qualifying, you said, but they're going to take advantage of it. You've got the kingdom, you're fine. It would be a pain to be taken advantage of, if we weren't inheriting the kingdom. No matter what we lose, we still have the kingdom. I can't tell if you believe me or not. We're inheriting everything God owns, and we're worried that somebody might take advantage of our mercy. Okay? I guess that's one way to do it. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. That is, blessed are those who recognize that the most important transformation that Christ is doing to us 
will never be seen by another person in this life. It's an inner battle. That most of the work that Jesus is doing in us is in our heart and will never be recognized. Blessed are those who rejoice in the unseen, unrecognized transformation of the inner person and not so much that which everybody seems to see and acknowledge. Finally, verse 9, blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the sons of God. I'm going to let you in. I want to give you a a tip. You're going to hate it, by the way. I'm going to give you a tip on how to make peace in your life. Are you ready? Got your pens out? Some of you are already thrown them down on the ground. You're going to, I'm just telling you right now, you're going to hate this. Let everybody else have their way. You, and you're arguing with me in your head. I know. This is ridiculous. I can hear it. That's how loud you're arguing. You don't understand. Now, listen, I'm not, I'm, I could spend all kinds of time qualifying to make sure we understand the difference between being a peacemaker and being submitting to abuse. That's not what we're talking about here. We're talking about significant differences of opinion in our home, in our life, and we will go to the death for how the linen closet ought to be arranged. How about the other person just gets their way? You don't understand. They will take advantage of me. Okay? Just reset this. Have to make sure we believe it. You're getting the whole kingdom. You can have an entire block of properly arranged linen closets in heaven. If that's what turns your crank, I mean, sheets here, thousand thread count over here, I don't know, however you like to have it. How to stand strong in the storm is to be Jesus-y. And it will not look strong, and the time to decide you want to be strong like Christ is not in the storm. It's before it comes. Start working on all of those, th- those things we know we are going to need when the storm comes, before the end comes. A couple of passing thoughts, and then we're going to close with this. Here we go. Those in the kingdom, by the grace of Christ, those of us who are in the kingdom, by the grace of Christ, by faith in Christ alone, will be surprised at the kinds of things that Jesus recognizes as amazing in our life. When we get to heaven, the top five, ten things that we think we've done that are amazing, he probably is like, oh, yeah, that's nice. Anyway, these small, quiet, unseen things that probably nobody else in your life knows about, he is going to look at those things and say, that, that was incredible. You kept at that in the midst of great difficulty. Nobody saw it happening. That was incredible. In the kingdom, we will be astonished at the kinds of things that Jesus goes, that was unbelievable. That brought me so much glory. Those of us not in the kingdom will be surprised on that day that Jesus does not think our stuff is that amazing. People in the kingdom will go, why is he so impressed with that? That was not a big deal. Those not in the kingdom will say, Why isn't he impressed with my incredible life? I gave so much money. I gave so much time. I was always there. The difference is in that day, and I would hope it even happens today, 
when we discover this, we turn to Jesus and say, man, you are amazing. This is incredible. This is good news. Whereas not kingdom people will always respond, why doesn't Jesus understand how amazing I am? And in fact, why don't these yahoos get it? How to be strong. How to stand on the last day. Do the will of the Father. Number one, believe Christ and Christ alone. Number two, having believed Christ, do Jesus-y kinds of things. Be made to be like Christ. How to stand strong in the storm. Prepare for the storm before it comes. And understand that it has to be built on the rock that is Christ and Christ-likeness.